How many here, uh, how many here were at the moving party yesterday for the mills? Wow, yeah. Guys, you know, I've told this, the, the old joke, the old saw before that home is the place where you go. When you get there, they have to let you in. Home is the place where they have to let you in. We talk about commitment and God's kind of chesed, uh, loyal love in this church a lot because we understand it's the work of Christ in us is to reproduce his life in us and he is a God of loyal love. And one of the ways you see that is not only that when you get there, people let you in, but when you move, people show up. And so when Rick and Marie Mills moved yesterday, you want to say something, Rick? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I know a lot of you probably don't know the mills yet. And I spoke with Rick on the phone yesterday morning. He said, I think we have plenty of help. I said, Rick, I've been to lots of moving parties with too few and none with too many. And we got there and it was raining. And the guys that might have been extra, they were holding the tarp up, actually thinking of her and and uh, who was it? Aaron holding up Moses. The extras were holding the tarp up over the heads of those moving the stuff from the bin into the moving van. So there were no extras, so it was great. But anyway, uh, we want to serve each other in those ways. It's, it's uh, Christ's love in action. It's not just words. It's deeds, and that's where we want to be as a church. Speaking of imitation, you know, the sincerest form of flattery is the old saying, it's popular, I think, to think of ourselves or others as in some ways originals or unique. And those words, I think, in describing other people or ourselves sometimes get overused. We would say on one hand, all of us are unique, right? That is, we're a unique blend of personality types, gifts, traits, background, points of view, etc. And we say all of us, because of that uniqueness in the image of God, we all have unique value to God. Absolutely. But guys, in the bigger scheme of things, none of us are unique. None of us are original. In fact, if you read Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon said, uh, there's nothing which has been done that hasn't been done before. There's nothing new under the sun. That's true for you and I, too. We're unique in the sense of the blend of qualities we have, but we're not unique in that somehow we come full cloth and we bring this somehow this element of life on earth that's never been seen before. And it's because, by our very nature, not only created in the image of God, but created and recreated to become like Jesus, our Savior, our life is actually a call to imitation. Our spiritual life is a call to a life of imitation. Now, you think even of uh, little babies. Our house is full of babies this week, which is great and fun. house will be a lot quieter come Tuesday, Wednesday, something. Uh, but, you know, how do those little babies, how do they learn? They learn by imitation, right? Mom and dad are speaking words to them. They learn language by imitation. They learn what's important in life by imitation. All of us live life by imitation. And the truth is we're taking our cues from one person or another, from one set of values or another. And the key this morning, as we'll see in the text in Ephesians 5 in just a minute, is that we're supposed to be imitating God our Father 
and Christ our Savior. And if, if we're not, we'll find that we're falling short of the mark. Uh, one of the best known Christian books really of all time was Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. Depends on who you read, but it said uh, not only is this probably the most popular uh, Christian devotional in history, translated or more widely distributed than any other. It's been around a long time. He wrote in the 1400s. His bottom line was this, that every Christian's call by taking in the words of Christ and the life of Christ is meant to be an imitation of Christ. Martin Luther said one of his key goals in life was to be Christ to his neighbors. I'm imitating Christ. Now, you can imagine for a campus in the 15th century, the Roman Catholic, his view of imitating Christ would be a bit different than yours and mine today. It's fixed in some significant points on the Roman Catholic sacraments, on the Eucharist, etc. But the call is the same for us today. It's to imitate Christ. You'll see in the passage here in just a second. And so a key question for us is, are we imitating Christ? And things like, What does it require of me if my life is an imitation of Jesus's life? What does that require of me? But also conversely, what does imitating the life of Christ prohibit me from? Because God talks about both this morning in Ephesians 5. So we're called to a life of imitation. And, you know, whether it's in marriage, you tell people in marriage, you're supposed to make your spouse, you're supposed to be an agent of change in the life of your spouse that helps them become more in the image of Christ God means them to be. You're supposed to be an agent that helps them imitate Christ. As parents, we're hoping we do that with our children. As friends, as siblings, we're hoping that we have those effects on others. So life for us is called to be a life of imitation into our unique blend of personalities and histories and insights and gifts, we're all supposed to have this common denominator. We're all imitating the life of God our Father and Christ our Savior. We're in, this is the series we've been in for some time, Christ Overall, and we're going to be in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21 this morning. If you use a pew Bible, this is page 978, I believe, and I'm reading from the ESV. It's a long passage, and guys, as we've said on almost every passage we've done, Ephesians is just chock full of good stuff, far more than we're ever going to get to in a given week. So we're going to pass over a lot of things you might uh, consider important, but we're going to focus on the whole theme of imitation. So Paul continues Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as and I'll paraphrase some of this on the way through as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ, imitate Christ. Christ walked in love, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, in contrast, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, some more negatives here, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, which is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. By the way, that means people will try to deceive you along this line. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you remember in Ephesians 2, Paul said you were children of wrath because your lifestyle 
was such as he's describing here. You were children of wrath. These are the kinds of things that elicit the wrath of God. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were, past tense, darkness, but now you are, present tense, light in the Lord. Walk or live as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they, those people who would attempt to deceive you, that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, and best guess on this short phrase that follows is this was an early hymn in the church. It has some parallels in Old Testament scripture, but doesn't appear to be a direct quote from any. Awake, O sleeper, you who were spiritually asleep, wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That word can also, is also translated elsewhere as, uh, uh, what is it, debauchery, as dissipation. It's the thought that I've just poured something out, I've wasted it. But, don't be poured out, but be filled up with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, guys, we are called to a life of imitation. That's absolutely a given, not only from this text but from elsewhere. And if you remember when we closed last, I think it was last week, chapter 4, verse 32, Paul there said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That was imitation. Forgive others, grace others with pardon and forgiveness as God has done for you. And Paul picks up that thought of imitation here and now he makes it life broad, not just on the issue of forgiveness. So verse 1, be imitators of God as his beloved children. And verse 2, walk in love. How? As imitating Christ, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we are called to a life of imitation. There's Hopefully you have a study sheet. There's some references here. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. And the same thing is said in 11.1 minus one phrase. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, all of us are taking cues from someone. The call here is to take them from God and from Christ. Paul said, look at my life. By the way, this is a, this is a challenge, isn't it? Can you and I say to others, pattern your life on mine? Some of us might cringe if we thought about that, right? Don't pattern your life on mine. But Paul says, I'm following Christ. I'm a good representation of Christ. So you imitate me because I'm imitating Christ, a life of imitation. Paul walked it out. He said, you can follow my example. Two times in 1 Corinthians. Also, two times in 1 Thessalonians, verse 16 in chapter 1 and verse 14 in chapter 2, Paul commends the Thessalonians because they imitated the apostles and Jesus because they took in God's word. They had God's joy and spirit and they endured in suffering. 
You remember, they came to Christ and there was just the hammer of suffering fell right away and they persevered. And Paul said, you've imitated the other Christians before you who are also persevering in the faith, a life of imitation. And last from Hebrews 6, 12, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The whole book of Ephesians is a warning to people. Don't give up on the faith. You know who Jesus is. You know the call. Persevere in the faith. And here Hebrews six twelve says, imitate those who've kept going. You get to chapter 11 and you got all those examples of people who who finished faithfully in the past in the Old Testament. So imitate the persevering faith of others. Now, guys, last week we looked at in chapter four, we said, everybody, if you're a Christian, you have an old and a new nature. You have an old Mr. Hyde nature. It's sinful. It's corrupt. It's spiritually dwarfish. It's deformed, it's malignant, it's given to evil. That's our condition, all of us, before we come to Christ. It's not a pretty picture, but morally, that's what God sees. And that old sinful life in us, it never gets better. It stays in us with this body, and it corrupts over time. What we said, there's also, if you will, a Dr. Jekyll, a noble, tall, statuesque, noble-minded. That's the life of Christ in us. So we don't want to confuse. We, we're going through a long list this morning of do's and don'ts. And this is the, one of the things we want to avoid. Christianity is not obeying a list externally of do's and don'ts. The whole appeal here is because you're God's children, because you have the life of Christ within, imitate God as your father. Grow up into the stature of Christ, your savior. But it's from the inside out. It's not external things that we do or we don't do. That's simply religion and it's hypocrisy ultimately. So as we talk about what God commands us to do and not do, it's not a religious hit list. God's saying, imitate me because I'm your father. You have my life. You're meant to grow up to resemble me. So it's from the inside out. It's not religious rules keeping. And we want to make sure we get that. So verse one, imitate God as his children. The term imitate there comes. Actually, we get our term mimic from the Greek term there. Mimic. Look at your father and do what your father does. You have his DNA. So you're to look at dad and see what dad does. And then you do what you see dad do. You remember in John's gospel, Jesus says, I only do those things I see my father doing. I'm imitating, Jesus says, my father. I look to my father, I take my cues from him, and that's what I do. And that's what Paul says here, that we're to look to our spiritual father and we're to imitate him. Primarily, of course, that's a life of loving others, isn't it? Of being in a loving relationship with him and loving others as well. But we're to imitate God our father. We have his spiritual DNA in us. He's our father. He loves us. He tells us how to grow up. He has saved us in Christ. We should be imitating God our Father. And think of this for just a second. Paul's made it clear that we're either in the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of darkness. And for us to transfer from darkness to light costs Jesus his suffering on the cross, his death and resurrection to get us out. What do you think it it intimates or suggests to God our Father if we're taking our cues from people who live in the camp of his enemy? If you and I are taking our cues, if we are imitating the lives of those who don't know God, our father, what are we saying to our father? Do you know what I mean? It's not just that we're imitating some other nice person. It's that we're taking our cues from the world that hates our father and from people who reject Christ, our savior. 
that would be a bit of a slap in the face, don't you think? You know, if one of my kids came home and they said, Dad, I not only don't imitate your ways, but I'm actually going the way of my neighbor down the way who's absolutely opposed to everything you love and think worthy. How would I feel about a parent? It'd be sort of the ultimate diss, wouldn't it? I'm in your house. I eat your food. I'm yours biologically, but I don't follow your lead. I follow your enemy's lead. It'd be a real slap in the face. But that's what many of us do, maybe in ways we don't even think about it because we're taking our cues from the world. In fact, you see this this whole theme you see written large in 1 John, in John's epistle. Love not the world nor the things in the world. The world is opposed to God our Father. But many of us, we're taking our cues. We're imitating the life in the world. We don't want to do that. We want to take our cues from God our Father. As some of you are in a Growing Kids God's Way class, and, and we're always glad when this comes up once a year with the Schwensons leading it, to say this is just one of the best things you can do as a parent is take that class because it's so helpful. One of the things that the Ezos talk about in that curriculum is they talk about developing a family ethos, and they say something like this. Uh, Halpins don't do those things. Or Ezos do these things. Or Smiths don't do those things. And it has nothing to do with pride or religion. It's a family value. They, they say, you want your kids to know that because I'm related to you, because I embrace the faith and the values of you, my parents, my life looks this way. And that's what God's saying to us here. He has a set of family values, and he means us to buy into those. God's children do some things, some certain things, and God's children do not do certain things. That's the thought here. Are we bearing our father's family values? Are his family values ours? Do we know as God's child, I do those things or I don't do those other things? You know, the whole fashion statement with the uh, what would Jesus do is over, I think. I don't see many of these around anymore. But the call is not only to imitate God our Father, it's also to imitate Christ our Savior. And the example Paul gives there in verse 2 is really this sacrificial love for the sake of others. That if I'm bearing, if I'm imitating Jesus' persona, if I'm imitating Christ, it's going to show up in the way of sacrificial love that I'm doing what's in the best interest of others, and I do so even when it costs me and perhaps costs me dearly. Uh, Moving others may not be a big deal, but I thought it was great. The turnout yesterday morning, people are getting wet and cold. Moving somebody, well, that's not a huge thing. It's significant, but it costs a little something to love someone else. But that's the call. To imitate Christ means, by definition, to humbly put ourselves beneath others so we can serve them, so that we can help them grow in Christ or simply be exposed to the faith in the first place. But the call to us is a call of imitation as a way of life, imitating God our Father, imitating Christ our Savior, and primarily it looks like faithful love lived out. What does it look like to honor my Father? I want to obey Him. What does it look like to honor and imitate Christ my Savior? It means to love my Father and to love others in His name as He has loved me. So this is not, and I just want to make sure we're clear on this, this is not putting on a religious facade. This is us becoming who we're meant to. This is us spiritually growing up in the new inner man that we have through regeneration. So Paul says, imitate your Father and imitate your Savior. And then he says, and don't imitate some other things. You see this starting at verse 3. 
uh, don't imitate anything relating to sexual sin, moral or spiritual uncleanness, or the desire for people or things that displaces God. He says, don't even let this be named among you. This is a challenge. We're in a sex-saturated culture. But you know, the the early church was too. Uh, To be called a Corinthian, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, was to be called an immoral degenerate. If you called someone who lived in Palestine a Corinthian, you were calling them a moral degenerate. So the early church lived through this too. And Paul says, don't let this even be named among you. Anything related to sexual sin, that's sin outside of marriage. And it could be, it could even be sex in marriage in a way that's not helpful to your spouse. But for sure, it's anything outside of marriage. Moral and spiritual uncleanness, and again, the, the world is deteriorating around us. The world is full of moral and spiritual uncleanness. It shouldn't be named among us. And guys, desire for people or things, he talks about it as covetousness. It's really greed for something that displaces God. That's why Paul calls it idolatry. He calls covetousness idolatry. I have pushed God out. I have pulled something else in that I say is required for me to find life sufficient. Idolatry. This would go like this for some of us. I'll I'll be happy with life when I get. What is it? Life will be complete when I do. What is it? Now, it could be a spouse could be children, could be a certain kind of job, could be an income, could be a certain kind of friend, could be any one of a number. of. We can make an idol out of just about anything. It's anything that displaces God. What comes up, Paul says, don't imitate any of those behaviors that displace God. Taking something else in that God doesn't mean us to have. So he says, don't do those things. Don't imitate those behaviors. He also says, don't imitate the way others speak and their speech. Look at verse 4. He says, no filthiness, and we would say no obscenities, no obscene speech or language. He says foolish talk, which I love. Foolish to us, it can mean a whole variety of things, but it comes from the Greek moron. Do you want to be a moron? Don't speak moronically, foolishly, stupidly. No crude joking. By the way, it's hard to live this way in our culture, isn't it? And depending on who you're rubbing shoulders with, you'll probably find that you're imitating the world more or less. Um, I worked for the fire department here for 16 years, loved every minute of it, loved the guys I worked with. But you know what I found? I found that when I was hanging out 24 hours a day with these guys, I had to be careful because you know what would happen? I would start taking on some of the negative attitudes and some of the negative speech. And it's like I realized I got to go in with this mindset that says I'm not going there. And I want to speak encouragement and I want to quote scripture and I want to be an encouraging force in this in this arena, in the way of attitude, at least, because otherwise I know I'm going down. It's got to be a conscious, conscious word. So he says, don't imitate these. Now, listen to this in verse five and six. And we don't have the time to develop this thought as might be helpful. But listen to this really strong language here. So don't do this. Don't do these things. Don't talk this way. And then at verse five, four, or because you may be sure of this, count on it. And later he says, don't let anyone deceive you because people will. They'll try to. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous and idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And again, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes 
That's interesting, isn't it? Paul says, if your lifestyle practice looks like the world, sexually immoral, impure, covetous, idolatry, you're not his. You're not his child. You haven't been born again. He says you don't inherit the kingdom. But guys, if you're Christ, you're a co-heir with Christ and the kingdom is yours. You inherit the kingdom. Every believer inherits the kingdom. Paul says the guys who live lives like this, they're not Christ's. They'll tell you, some will tell you they are. But Paul says they're lying because they're not. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is something you can think about at home. It's a huge subject, by the way. Paul says there, the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. And he says the same language, don't be deceived. Same thing. Here he says, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of them inherit the kingdom of God. That's interesting, isn't it? And and, and Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 21, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh, and he says, I warned you before that those who do such things don't inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's making a point, isn't he? Some people say they're gods and they're not. And generally, you can tell by their fruit. Generally, and I'm going to qualify this, so hold on to this for just a second. This is very blunt language. Paul says they're not Christ's. They're not God's. They're not saved. And that's why they live the way they do. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this. He, de- he describes those people who aren't in God's kingdom. And then he says, and such were some of you. God's not saying he doesn't save people who start this way. He's saying, such were some of you. You were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we want to take people at their word. If someone says they're a Christian, I'm I'm glad to take them at their word. If they're living a life of immorality, then Scripture tells me to go and confront them with their sins. So that's what I would do. And now if they say something like this, I'm okay with God and God's okay with me in my life of immorality. Well, then I'd probably follow Matthew 18 and I'd get some other witnesses and we'd go and we'd ask them to change their thought and their practice again and we'd tell it to the church. And, but see, at the end of the day, you're not free to treat them like Christians because they don't live like Christians. The person, and this is the distinction I want to make, Christians sin, right? Do Christians sin in immorality? Yeah. Do we have problems with pornography in this church? Absolutely. Do we have a problem with impure thoughts or speech? Absolutely. Can we and can most of us name some of these sins as our sins? Yeah. So is the pro, is the issue sin? And is and it's not. See the difference is is attitude. In fact, think of it this way: the person who says my sin is okay is saying Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. There's no need for justification. I'm okay living the way I am. In other words, it undercuts the whole message of the gospel, right? The gospel says, I'm a needy sinner, and I'm subject to God's righteous wrath. But this person says, I can live any way I want to. It's no big deal to me or to God. And I think that's the person Paul's describing. If you go up to someone and you say, brother, uh, you're in sin, and they say, you know what? I know I am, and I've been stuck in this thing for years or months or weeks or whatever. And I know it's sin, and I confess, and I repent, and I fall again. That's not who Paul's talking about. All of us sin. And all of us need a lot of grace with each other. And certainly God our Father gives us lots of grace. He's not saying those folks aren't saved. He's saying the person who lives a lifestyle characterized by the sins that God says bring his wrath, 
He says they're deceiving you. And they may be deceiving themselves, but they're not Christ's. They're not Christ's. So don't do some things. Don't speak certain ways. And don't be deceived by people who tell you you can live that way, live the way of the world, and gladly say you're Christ and you live in God's family. He says, no, they don't. But there will be people who will tell you that they do. I hope that's clear. I know this can be confusing and lots of people have challenges. And let me close with this. This is the thing. Everybody wants to know, is that person a Christian or not? It's the wrong question. You see someone in sin and you say, I thought they were a Christian. Now I guess they're not. It's the wrong question. Second Timothy 2.19. Paul says some guys that were calling themselves Christians, they had failed to continue to walk with Christ. And, and Paul has two conclusions. If you name the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. So if you name Christ, if God's your father and Christ's your savior, then quit practicing sin. If you've sinned, confess, get up and start over. But he also says God knows those who are his. Who knows who belongs to God? God knows. You and I don't. There are weeds that look like wheat. And scripture's clear on this, guys. There will be people that are in heaven that you were sure were not saved. And there will be people that are not in heaven that you were sure were. You'll only know this at the final day. We won't know that before. So, so we don't want to be deceived. You can't live like the world and say you're God's child. It doesn't wash. It doesn't work. So what are we characterized by? So he says, don't imitate some certain behaviors, behaviors and speech. And then he says, don't associate with certain kinds of people. Verse 7, don't become partakers with them. And this is on your study sheet, the reference. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul's saying don't associate with the people whose lives are characterized by these kinds of sins. Guys, we generally become like the people we're hanging out with. Many of us kid ourselves. We think I can go, I can hang out, and I'm immune, and we're not. Um, You know, Jesus says uh, you're clean, but you need to wash your feet. All of us get a little dirty. When we hang out in the world and some of us have a higher estimation of ourselves than God does because we think we can hang out with the immoral people of the world. And Paul here says, for God, don't. And again, we'll draw a distinction here in just a second, but don't. And some of the things that happen for us, um, I think of a couple reasons why we may justify our own mind hanging out with the people in the world that God tells us not to. And, And one is evangelism. And the other is, I just need a break. So evangelistically, uh, have you heard of evangelistic dating? Evangelistic dating. I'm a Christian. She isn't or he isn't. But I'm dating evangelistically. God's going to use me to bring them to Christ. Isn't that nice? It's like, where do you get that? Show me that in the Bible. I can show you the opposite. Where do you get that? Or I'm evangelistically hanging out with these guys that are smoking pot, getting drunk, doing drugs. I'm evangelistically hanging out. Who am I becoming like? Well, I'm becoming like them. Don't go there. Don't go there. Or maybe I say this. You know what? Life's been hard. I just need a break. If I go back to the guys I was hanging out with before, the gals I was hanging out with before, if I just take a break, I'll feel better. I'll be refreshed. I'll come back and I'll get back in the race. That's another reason. And you'll hear people say this. I certainly have. Don't go there. You're not getting life in the valley of death. It just does not work that way, evangelistically or otherwise. 
Evangelism, guys, God uses the message of Christ to save others. We're instruments and he doesn't need you and he doesn't need me to get people saved. And we want to be part of the process, absolutely. But it's the gospel and it's the truth and it's certainly affirmed over time. So be careful on this. Now the flip side is this. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking this. Jesus hung out with sinners. Aren't we just becoming Pharisees if we say, well, I don't hang out with you. And this is the thing. Uh, Jesus could be tempted, but he couldn't sin. And that's not true of you and me. One. So don't think you're Jesus. You're not. The life of Jesus is in you. And we want to grow up as Christ. But we can be tempted and we can and do sin. So the analogy doesn't go across apples to apples. Is it right for us to hang out with people who don't know Christ for the sake of the gospel? Absolutely. Do we want to befriend people? Absolutely. What we don't want to do is join in what they're doing. And I don't believe Jesus got drunk when he hung out. And I don't believe he practiced immorality when he sat with the, with the adulteress. So there's a difference. So should Christians be willing to hang out with these folks who aren't in God's family for the gospel? Absolutely. Just don't kid yourself on why you're there or what your mission is. We were in an academic uh, conference last fall, and one of the plenary speakers was an attractive young Greek woman who's an academic. She's, she's a gal that, uh, oh, what does she help uh, edit the, the, the Gospels, the New Testament writing? She's a smart person. You know what she does with her side time? She goes to the brothels in Athens. And she witnesses to the gals that work there. Is that appropriate? Absolutely. Is she caving into the sin? Absolutely not. So are we saying don't don't go where sinners go? Of course not. We're not associating in the sense that we're becoming like them. Why are you there? What are you doing? What's the fruit of the time you have with those folks who aren't in God's family yet? He says, verse 8, you were darkness, now you're light, so let your life look like a light of life. Uh, He says to, um, sorry, missed that one. That's a good one, wasn't it? Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. Whoever walks with fools will suffer harm. That's who we're hanging out with. Uh, He says don't uh, don't associate. And then he says, uh, verse uh, Roman numeral four on your study sheet, uh, careful wise imitation. And, And this is where, uh, this is where I'd like to spend the balance of our time. And this is kind of a checkoff for us again. Uh, this is a hard-headed look at our own life and the fruit in our own life. How are we doing in our walk of imitating God our Father and Christ our Savior? How does that, how's that going for us? Because there's some brass tacks. Look at this uh, out of Ephesians. I've cut the negatives out and I've just put the positives in. Uh, Paul says in verse 11, this probably isn't on your study sheet, expose works of darkness. A Christian should be calling sin, sin. You remember John the Baptist told Herod, you're in sin. That's wrong. Politicians of our day, should we say they're in sin if they're in sin? Absolutely. Professing Christians, absolutely. Christians are called to expose works of darkness. Sometimes that's privately, one-to-one. Sometimes that's publicly. But we're, we're the light against the darkness. Uh, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise care you know a lot of us are bumbling along through life and it's like well, easy come easy go I, I do this i don't do that it, it's a life characterized by anything but care biblical wisdom 
I'm aware that I live in the enemy's territory and I'm on my guard. I'm trying to live wisely as Christ lived. Uh, He says, verse 16, making the best use of our time. Guys, I wonder in heaven when we look back on our own lives, how much of our time will burn up because it was just banal, useless waste of time. Because we've got so many diversions today, do we not? It's not just social media. We have so many options on the use of our time. You can just fritter it away. It's crazy. So Paul says make the best use of the time. Elsewhere it says redeem the time. Buy the time back. Redeem it. Are are we redeeming the time God gives us? This doesn't mean you work all the time. It doesn't mean you're super spiritual all the time. Right? So we're made to work. We're made to rest. There are seasons of life. There's a time for all things. not denying that at all. But are we doing in the time what's appropriate? Will we be glad for how we spent our life, the time God gave us from eternity's perspective? He says, verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, can we understand God's will apart from knowing God's word? You can't. We need to be reading our Bibles. Need to be reading our Bibles. You know what else we need to do? Understanding what the will of the Lord is. You need to be meeting with other Christians. You need to be in fellowship in small groups or men's groups or women's groups or one-on-one accountability groups, whatever they may be. you got to be iron sharpening iron with other Christians because we simply lose track. None of us are absolutely objective. So we want to understand what God says in his word, but we want to be hanging out with others who know us well enough and we know them that we can challenge each other, encourage each other in the right ways. He says, verse 18, interestingly, be filled with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit this morning? We could almost say if we're not, we're disobeying God, right? So we can grieve the Spirit, Paul says. We can quench the Spirit by what we do and refuse to do. But here he says, be filled with the Spirit. If we're in active disobedience, we're not filled with the Spirit. That would be safe to say. What does being filled with the Spirit looks like? We can at least negate some things. It means we're not actively sinning. It means we're doing the things we know to do, not legalistically, but because Christ's life is in us. And we can be praying, Lord, you show me, you speak to me, lead me today. Show me what your life in me is about today. Verse 19 is interesting just for us, our culture as a concept. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Anybody here get up and sing to your spouse this morning or your children? They probably said stop if you did. Uh, What does this look like for us? Uh, You know how a lot of uh, Bible memorization is done for kids, don't you? It's done by singing. You know, when I was a brand new Christian, I I had a Christian brother. It was very annoying. And uh, when I would ride with him, he would make me sing with him. And what we sang was Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I've never had to try and memorize the fruit of the Spirit because it's stuck in my head. It was stuck because it was a song. You know, in this sense, music, and you think of the whole book of Psalms, 150 songs. And if you know, they use literary structure to help you remember them. But it it was truth set to music. And that music helps it really stick in your head. Well, that's part of at least what Paul's talking about here. Music has this powerful effect of being able to help us remember things. And I think that's at least part of what's going on here. Speak to one another the things that are true. 
And back here in the day, a lot of the way they did that was through singing. It was through memory put to music or melody so that they could remember it and recite it to each other. What are we reciting to each other? What are we telling each other? What's the music that's going through our own mind? I love all kinds of music, but I want to be careful that I'm not putting stuff in my head that's the wrong message through the music that I listen to. And it's a very powerful effect. Verse 20 says, giving thanks always for everything. Giving thanks always for everything. You know, thankful people are typically joyful people. They're people at peace with God and with each other. It doesn't mean they like everything that's going on in their life, but they're able to thank God. If you find a complaining person, I'll bet you don't want to be around them very long. Thankful people are humble people. They're directed towards others. God, thank you that I have a roof over my head or whatever. Thank you. And verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This means living humbly, but it's also the heading for the next section of Scripture, which we won't get into today. So when you go home, you've got a little uh, table there with the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Just rate yourself. You can do this mentally or you could do this in pen or pencil on the sheet. This is the acid test for the transformation of the imitation of Christ in your life and mine. This, this lifestyle defined by these fruits, these attitudes in us, it's the defining element of our imitation of Christ. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can figure out where you are and are not being transformed into the image of God simply by that list. So give a hard-headed look to that later. So, guys, we tend to imitate those we admire and those we spend the most time with. So if you look at your life, and this is another assessment question, when you look at your life, who, humanly speaking, who's had the most impact on you in your life? When you look back and you say, I've been influenced by, who has it been? We've, we're taking our cues from someone. We don't arrive whole cloth. We come, we're shaped, and we're formed as we look at others and we imitate what we like. Or we see what we don't want. A negative imitation, negative form of imitation, if you will. I see something, I say, I don't ever want to be like that. Who are we taking our cues from? Now, you know, if you're a parent, whether you think your kids are buying into what you're selling or not, you're definitely affecting your children. Your children take a lot of their cues from you, even if they don't. It doesn't look like they're buying your values in the moment. Your kids are imitating you. They can't help it. You're formative in their life. If you're an older sibling, what are your younger siblings gaining if they imitate your life? Or your friends, if your friends imitate you, what do they come away with? Who humanly are we taking our cues from in this call to imitation? If somebody looks at our life, where do we say, don't imitate me in this realm. I'm not, I'm not transformed. Well, that'd be a good area to look to the Lord for help in transformation. Who are we taking our cues from? Who are we imitating? Are we someone that others can and should imitate because we could say like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the call is to the imitation of God and of Christ. What does that look like in your life and mine. There's a lot of do's and don'ts, but at the end of the day, when we look at our life, are we saying, I'm, I'm growing up. This is God's will in our life, right? 
The lordship of Christ in our life means I become like Christ. That's what God's doing. Romans 8. It's us being transformed more fully into the image, the perfection of his son. Is that what we see going on in our life through life of imitation? Father, thanks that you loved us so fully that you sent Jesus for us. Thanks that he took every one of our sins away. And Father, would you help us to value the, the offering that was Christ's? Um, would you help us to, to value the gift that you gave in your son? By the way, we live. Would you help us to see you as the ultimate object of our imitation? Would you help us to live lives which others can see you through us? In Jesus' name, amen.